from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll explore the history of school choice and how the line between public and private education has blurred over time. Then we'll learn how UWM's Banfred Olson Planetarium works. And I can't tell you how many times people have gasped when that transition happens to a country sky when they feel like somehow I took off the roof and we're outside. Plus, we'll help you plan a trip to Door County, where there are haunted trolley tours happening for the Halloween season. These are not made up. Nobody's jumping out with chainsaws. These are real stories told right where they occur, so it's really a great tour. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. We'll start with a look at school choice programs. A new book argues that with the proliferation of school choice programs across the country, the line between public and private education has blurred. Kara Fitzpatrick's book, titled The Death of Public School, chronicles the rise of school choice, including voucher programs that use taxpayer funding for students' private school tuition. The book focuses heavily on Milwaukee, which is home to the oldest voucher program in the country. Fitzpatrick joins WUWM education reporter Emily Files to share the history of school choice. So the history of vouchers or using public funds to pay for private schools goes back to the time of Brown versus Board of Education and state's resistance to desegregation. How were vouchers used during that time? Southern segregationists kind of saw Brown coming in the years beforehand because there'd been some court cases at the university level. And so they started looking at ways to privatize the school system, essentially, And vouchers were part of that, but it was just one mechanism. And the idea essentially for vouchers was that if they couldn't stop desegregation, that it would be sort of an escape mechanism and that white students could use school vouchers to pay for all white private education. But eventually the courts, you know, the courts dismantled the programs and said that these are racist, you know, that the purpose is to get around Brown versus Board. And so the courts shut it all down. So those programs were struck down by courts, but the fight for so-called school choice continued. And fast forward to the late 1980s, Milwaukee becomes the birthplace of the modern school voucher movement. Why Milwaukee? So Milwaukee was kind of um, the perfect place for this in a lot of ways because it had a history already of having um, these independent, secular private schools that uh, were well-regarded and were primarily serving low-income Black and Latino students. And so there already was, you know, sort of a market essentially for this. And I said low-income, but but actually it was just Black and Latino students. And, um, And so you had that there. And then you also had, you know, a situation where the school district had fought over segregated schools. And there was a certain amount of of discontent within the Black community about how the public school system was doing as far as serving students. There was, in some quarters at least, a little bit of um, pushback against integration policies that put a lot of the burden on integration on Black families. 
And, you know, and some black families felt that that was unfair and also that perhaps they were not getting better outcomes as a result of it. And then you had, you know, Polly Williams, who was this well-known state lawmaker who had a lot of um, reservations about the public school system and had made some efforts to try to improve education for black students. And so, you know, you kind of had all of the pieces in Milwaukee for something like this to happen. So Polly Williams wasn't happy with the desegregation efforts that put the burden of desegregation on black students. And she wasn't happy with the functioning of of Milwaukee public schools at the time. So she had a proposal for an all-Black school district and took that proposal to Republican Governor Tommy Thompson. What happened from there? Yeah, so this was something that uh, Polly Williams didn't come up with herself. Howard Fuller, who um, was not yet a superintendent, but at the moment he's a former superintendent of Milwaukee Public Schools, um, you know, he had a role in in that idea and and Polly kind of ran with it. And it just wasn't going to go anywhere, essentially. Um, but it was one of the ideas that Polly Williams put out there as part of her effort to try to force the school district to take more seriously the issue of how Black students were doing, you know, in the public schools. So Tommy Thompson had a different idea for how to give Black families and and families in general in Milwaukee more choices, and that was a voucher program. Can you talk about um, what that first voucher program looked like? Yeah, I mean, Tommy Thompson tried a couple of times without Polly Williams to pass a voucher program, and it did not go anywhere. Um, but the the program that eventually ends up passing was very small. And it was limited to low-income children only in the city of Milwaukee. And the enrollment at the time was capped to a small percentage of the school district. And so the idea was to have a very, very targeted program and essentially an experiment to see if this was something that offered some kind of alternative, you know, for low-income children in Milwaukee. I think it was just seven private schools in the first year, and they were all secular private schools, right? Yeah, and the fact that it was secular was really important um, because religious schools came in later and that created a lot of legal questions. But originally it was it was small and it was secular and it, there weren't that many participating schools. So in 1995, um, Wisconsin's and Ohio's school choice programs started to include religious schools. And that's what set the stage for a Supreme Court battle that would decide whether it was constitutional to use public dollars for private religious schools. So what happened in that case? Well, so it's interesting because Milwaukee is the first sort of modern school voucher program, but it starts off secular. And then at the same time that Tommy Thompson was pushing to include religious schools in the program about five years later, uh, Cleveland actually had started down the road of having a school voucher program, and they jumped in at the same time, but went straight to religious schools. So you ended up having two programs now um, that were sort of dueling, essentially, on this, this like potential path to the U.S. Supreme Court, because at the time, no one actually knew if it was constitutional to have a voucher program. And so 
it was kind of a question as to, well, what case is going to end up finally being called before the U.S. Supreme Court? And a lot of people thought it might be Milwaukee, and it ends up actually being Cleveland. What were the arguments um, for and against using public funds for religious schools, for private religious schools? So some of the argument was looking at, at what point are you sort of advancing religion by providing state dollars to pay for tuition? You know, and at what point is the government becoming entangled with a religious organization? And also, are you on the flip side, are you discriminating against a religious organization? And so there's different cases over time that the court would look at to try to answer that question, but it wasn't clear cut. And so part of what the discussion was really ended up centering on this role of parents, you know, because the government is not directly giving state aid to a religious school in a voucher program. They're actually giving it to a family who then decides how to use it. And so that was really sort of the pivotal question that the court was looking at and trying to decide, is this okay? So your book also chronicles the rise of charter schools, which faced some resistance, but were actually embraced by both Republicans and Democrats for a long time. So what what's the difference with charter schools versus voucher schools and, and how that movement took off? The idea of charter schools is that they are a still a public school, but a different type of public school, and one that's essentially free from the control of a school district. So it has some autonomy, but it still has some of the public accountability. School vouchers, you know, on the other hand, are providing basically an escape from the public school system, but to private education, which has a lot less accountability. And so in a, in a large part, charter schools took off as a reaction to vouchers because it was something that Democrats in particular could say, well, we're in favor of choice, but we're in favor of public school choice and charter schools are public school choice. And Republicans are in favor of all types of choice. So for them, it was like, well, charter schools are okay. You know, they're not as good in some ways as school vouchers, but we can get behind that too. And so charter schools really took off across the country because it did have, the idea had this bipartisan support behind it. What does the research show about whether voucher and charter schools live up to their original goal of improving student achievement? So this is something I was interested in because at the start of these movements, no one really knew. There was sort of this assumption that these things would be better And now that we've got, you know, 30 plus years of research, it's not the win that that advocates were looking for. You know, um, there are some pretty major studies of school voucher programs that don't necessarily show any difference in test scores, or if there is one, there's actually a decline in some places in math scores. And then for charter schools, It's possibly a little bit more complicated because charter schools vary so much, but there was a study over the summer from Credo, which is a group associated with Stanford that has studied charter schools for a very long time. And they uh, came out with, with a study that basically said that on average, charter schools now have a little bit of a test score advantage over traditional public schools, but it's very, very small. So the title of your book is The Death of Public School. So are you making the case that school choice is leading to a sort of slow death of traditional public schools? So 
I say in the introduction that the vast majority of American kids are still educated in public schools. And so it's not, it's not so much an argument about enrollment figures. What I was kind of looking at was what is the major question that, that this movement poses, you know, and it's essentially, is this going to harm the public school system? And I include charter schools in that, you know, is it going to replace the traditional public school system? And then sort of on a wonkier, more profound level, I was also looking at this idea of, well, what is a public school and what is public education? Because Republicans right now are making this case that any education paid for with public dollars is essentially public education. And so in a way, you know, I just had this question of, well, if you can go to a Catholic school for your entire like K-12 education and have it be paid for with public dollars, at what point is that public education? And then in a way, isn't that sort of a death of public school because we're calling something public education that that is very, very different from what the traditional viewpoint is of it. In Wisconsin, there are four voucher programs now, and they've grown to more than 50,000 students statewide, about 30,000 in Milwaukee. So it's a very different program than the one with seven secular private schools in 1990. What did Polly Williams think about how the voucher movement turned out? Polly came to be pretty disillusioned by the voucher movement. And actually, she started pushing against it fairly early on, you know, within five or six years of the Milwaukee program starting, she was raising sort of uncomfortable questions about where the movement was going and what sort of the true intentions were of some of her conservative allies. And she came to feel that it had been sort of hijacked was the word she used, but hijacked by conservatives and that it was going in a direction that that really was different from what she had intended at the start. In what ways? She really believed that it should be, you know, uh, more of a tool of empowerment for low-income families. And she resisted efforts to raise the, you know, the income requirements to allow more uh, middle-class or higher families to participate. And, And she really, you know, she really didn't think that it should be a subsidy essentially for families who already could afford private school tuition. I'm not sure if you saw this, that there was a lawsuit that was filed last week in Wisconsin that's challenging the existence of voucher and charter schools. And your book has a pretty thorough retelling of the legal battles that have already happened around these types of schools. Does it seem like the issue has been settled or do you think there could be a, a pathway to have these programs ruled as unconstitutional or illegal? I did see that. It's pretty interesting. And I noticed that charter schools were included in that, I think. You know, part of it has to do with just who's sitting on the court ultimately when when some of these questions are asked, because Florida went through this, but sort of the opposite. They had a program struck down and then the court changed and the question came up again, you know, and the answer is different. So it's possible that a lawsuit actually could have a different outcome and it would depend a little bit on what the legal arguments are. But one of the things that's tough when cases like this come up is that the people who are using the program 
you know, when it's already off the ground and there's this long history and people are using it, it's extremely hard to then take something back. And so I imagine there would be a level of public outcry about that. Kara Fitzpatrick is the author of the new book, The Death of Public School, about the history of school choice in the U.S. She spoke with WUWM's Emily Files. If you want to hear more from Fitzpatrick, she's speaking at Marquette University Law School this Friday afternoon. The Manfred Olson Planetarium on the campus of UW-Milwaukee is marking a special occasion this weekend its 100th anniversary. Now, the planetarium isn't actually 100 years old, but the invention of the planetarium is. The Manfred Olson Planetarium was built to be a gathering place where people can learn and be inspired by the many wonders of space. To learn more about its history and how the projector inside of it works, Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski joins astronomy contributor Gene Creighton at the planetarium. We're sitting right by this beautiful projector. We're under the dome of the Manfred Olson Planetarium on the UWM campus. And I don't think we've actually talked about this, at least not you and I. But can you share who this space is actually named after? I read the name in the outros all the time, but who who was Dr. Manfred Olson? (laughs) So he was a physics professor here at UWM. And he taught astronomy for several years. And I think he understood the value of having this kind of facility, especially in a city where increasingly people are able to see stars less and less. So that kind of visceral connection that people would have had who lived you know, away from city lights is being lost. This, of course, was also in the 60s where there was a whole you know, space race and people were super excited about this. Um, so ours was one of many that uh, sprung in that time in the, in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, to give you a sense, about 200 were built around the Great Lakes at that time. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a huge number. Yeah. So we are celebrating this month the 100th anniversary of the first planetarium projector ever constructed. What did that look like and how did it operate? Well... In principle, what we have is similar in how it works. So uh, we're gonna describe this since our, our listeners are not able to see what we're seeing. So the machine in the middle of the room looks a little, I don't know, I mean, a little sci-fi, it's big. It's almost my height. It's in, uh, on a pedestal. And at the very top of the machine, there's a round ball we call a star ball there are what looks like lenses protruding from the ball. And those are spaces either where the galaxy is, because the galaxy has that kind of milky sense, so you need special lenses for that. And also the really bright stars. Not only does the lens help focus the light so that particular star looks brighter than the rest, but also if it has a color, you can put a little film and make it redder, for Mm. example, or bluer. Most stars on that star ball will be invisible to us with a naked eye because they're too small. This machine has a bright lamp in the middle, it's an LED lamp now, and that can project on this dome point-like stars. And I can't tell you how many times people have 
gasped when that transition happens to a country sky, when they feel like somehow I took off the roof and we're outside. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it really doesn't get old. I love mm-hmm. that. Now, there's a column, and on that column, there are little projectors. Now, when I say little, they're like the size of two fingers, about the length and width of that. And those are what we call constellation projectors, so that seasonally we can project a few key constellations on top of the stars just to help people envision what they're supposed to be, right? And sometimes a lot of imagination is required for that. Sure. Uh, and as we go down the column, there is a, a round cylinder that has several circular gearboxes, if you will. And they're pretty because they have, you know, each one has its own color scheme. So those are the visible planets. There are five, the okay. moon and the sun. Because the machine can, of course, do beautifully stars because mm-hmm. the machine rotates so it can simulate the motion, the apparent motion of stars over the course of the evening, planets have more complicated motions because we're seeing something that's moving at a different rate from us who are also moving. So each of those has its own gearbox and planets then do their own separate location. So it'll be correctly uh, projected on the dome. With this machine, is this the first one that was built with this planetarium? Or Yes, this okay. is the original machine. They don't make them like this anymore. <laughs> this was built in 1965. It opened the, the planetarium. So I, the planetarium building, if you will, dome, is called a planetarium because of this machine. Okay. The planetarium projector names the building. I mean, sometimes people say the word planetarium, and what they're really talking about is the theater is the dome. Yeah. Um the machine gave its name to the building. Yeah, I didn't know that fact. And this machine is a Spitz A3P optomechanical projector. <laughs> so yes. you walked us through a bit about how it works. How do you run a show? How do you project the images that are put through this machine here? So there are two components of our show, actually three, one could argue. The first component is the program, the topic of today, right? So it might be... For example, we, we are having a show on the 21st of October, which is open to everyone, talking about celebrating with cake. And we'll talk a little bit about the history of planetariums. So that's done through a computer. I have design students with whom I work very closely. And I'm, I must say, I'm very proud, very proud of the work they do because it's top-notch, top-notch. And as I like to say, you know, eventually I won't be able to afford, when they get out in the world, I won't be able to afford them. So (laughs) they work with me when they're students, and that's great. And they learn also about what works and what doesn't and all kinds of practical issues of how you communicate information in as accessible a way, but also engaging. So that's the first piece. And that we do with four projectors that talk to my computer And then no matter where you are in the theater, you can see what's being projected. I like to point out that our theater, unlike now many, is what we call concentric. The seating is concentric, which I love because it has a theater feeling to it. The audience can kind of look at the audience as well. Yeah. Um, Many planetariums now are unidirectional because a lot of them depend on showing things on a screen in one direction so it makes sense for everybody to be looking in the same direction. These are live programs though so I get to interact with 
audiences in no matter where they're sitting, which I absolutely love. I should point out the second piece, which is the stargazing piece. So that's where the machine comes in. We turn off all the projectors and we play with the level of light. These are LEDs in the cove. And that's again, that simulates a city sky from a country sky. And the final piece is we have a Q&A where the audience can ask me whatever they want to know. And that's also fun. Yeah. Well, and the concentric piece to it, it reminds me of, say, when you go camping or even at a park here in Milwaukee, you're looking up and turning around. You're not just looking straight out in one direction. That's right. Yeah. And, and also it almost has that, I'm glad you said that, that kind of campfire feeling, right? We're all kind of around this isn't a fire but it kind of feels like that yeah that's yeah. a central central light point right yeah that's yeah right. yeah so uh, with the 100th anniversary coming up and you know we're sitting here you've done how many countless shows in your tenure here i'm guessing about four thousand. yeah so many <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you reflect on with this occasion and what do you think uh, planetarium's legacy is what a great question Here's what I think the role of our planetarium is and planetariums in general. I think that we are losing city folk, especially that connection with how the earth fits into the grander scheme. So let's acknowledge that of course I'm interested in the science and then the engineering and the exploration aspect of this, obviously, right? I love space exploration. I love talking about the discoveries we make and made, have made. But I think the key point now is shifting. And the key point is to find spaces where communities can gather together and be awed. I really think we need more of that in-person togetherness and acknowledge that there's much more that brings us together than separates us and that the sky is a great unifier. So that would be the, you know, the one big theme. The other theme, I think, is the more we learn about what's out there, the more we appreciate our own planet. And let's make sure that we take care of this planet, this world. I think those are now the big pieces that a planetarium can help. And I also love the fact that Different planetariums do things differently. They have all a role to play. I mean, we have lots of planetariums in our area, and that's great. And I hope that people take this as an opportunity to explore their planetariums in their region, wherever they are. Maybe starting here on the campus of UWM. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jean, thank you so much for having us here today. I really appreciate it. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Jean Creighton is the director of the Manfred Olson Planetarium at UW-Milwaukee, and she spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. The planetarium will be having a centennial party this Saturday evening. It's free and open to the public, and you can find more information at wuwm.com. Door County is a popular place to visit in Wisconsin all year round, but there's so much to do during fall, including a haunted trolley ride. We encourage people to bring cameras. We probably, I'm not kidding you, for the last 20 years, seven to eight times a week, we get emails and texts of pictures of this one house we talk you into. It is truly haunted. 
We'll tell you all about it and help you plan a trip to the area later in the show. But first, we'll share some recommendations on where to drive to see the best fall colors and experience small river towns. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Fall in Wisconsin is something special, and one of the best ways to take in the changing colors and explore the scenery is by getting in your car and simply driving. For freelance writer Kevin Revolinsky, fall road trips are his specialty. He wrote about some of the best fall trips across Wisconsin for this month's Milwaukee Magazine. From small river towns to bluff views, he joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski to share his recommendations. What, in your opinion, makes for a great fall drive? Well, um, I I guess the obvious, colors. (laughs) And lots lots of tree coverage and and great colors. And uh, in planning that, of course, we in Wisconsin, we have the convenience of our Travel Wisconsin color map so they can tell you when those colors are ready and raring to go. Absolutely. So you wrote a feature on the best fall drives here in the state. And the first route I want to talk about is one I actually stumbled upon accidentally when I was driving back from Minneapolis. I kind of was like, you know what, it's just me. I was like, going from Minneapolis, I was around La Crosse. I was like, I don't want to take 94 home. Let's let's mix it up. So I came upon the Great River Road. So can you share more about this? Where does it start? Where can it take you? Well, it starts all the way up at the headwaters in Minnesota. And then uh continues on past New Orleans into the Delta. I mean, it's 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 an amazing uh, scenic byway and uh, goes through, you know, major cities, of course, along the way, you know, places like Memphis, um, but also a whole lot of small river towns. So that's kind of what makes it great is you've got this natural winding drive that follows a river and uh, small towns to stop in as well as natural beauty uh, in between those towns. So it's it's a pretty neat uh, drive, and and Wisconsin's got a couple hundred miles of it, I guess. So yeah, it was, it's pretty great. The Winding River route just kind of helps you celebrate, as you wrote, like all things small and local. So with about thirty three river towns along this drive in our state, um, do you have any specific towns that you especially liked, or what would you say are the best ways to characterize river towns and their appeal? Wow, they they're they're all. Um... You know, they're all the same and all so different, you know, <laughs> like uh, there's little places like Genoa that uh, clearly has an Italian, you know, heritage, so, you know, from settlers, I guess, with that name. Um, but it's got a visitor center for the Great River Road um, and, you know, a couple shops here, a couple of places to eat, that sort of thing. And then you've got, you've got cities like La Crosse, which is just filled with, um, you know, places to stay, places to see, places to eat. Or then you get a little town like Potosi population. Well, last I checked, it was 711, but it's got the National Brewery Museum. So, I mean, that's kind of an unusual, you know, it's that small town, but at the same time, it's got this this, uh, amazing museum that sets it apart from the rest. And it's also got the longest main street in the United States. I've never quite totally understood what that meant. But um, it is a long, winding main street that connects it back out to, what is that, Highway 133. 
to continue on down the highway to to Iowa. But it's also right there on the Mississippi River, and there's a natural place where you can go out. Well, people go fishing there, um, but you can kind of drive out and uh, get up close to the water there as well. So, And with the water, we are close to, as you said, Minnesota. You just mentioned Iowa. And, uh, you know, I love to stop at new places and especially walk around to get a feel for them. And another must stop on your list that is great if you want to go for a bit of a hike and take a break is Harper's Ferry, Iowa. Right, 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 right. So that's, you know, a wild space preserved. It's got 200 and it's got the Effigy Mounds National Monument is there. And uh, that is like 200 plus uh, Native American effigy mounds. So the hikes are, you know, some of them are easier than others, but uh, you can get short ones where you just duck in for less than a mile, but uh, other, you know, loops that go as far as seven miles. So, um, and in the fall, you've got, you know, migration along the river as well. So anytime you're you're going into into uh, natural, um, you know, state parks and, and whatnot along the way, you're going to probably catch a lot of migrating birds following you know, their own path down to the Gulf of Mexico. So, In addition to the colors, like we mentioned, the nature that comes out in the fall, there's also a ton of bluff views. Now, people here in Milwaukee might not realize that bluff drives are not that far away, right? Right. And bluffs are, you know, characteristic of this stretch of, of the river. I mean, the further south you go, you know, some of those areas don't have them. So it's it's very particular to our stretch between um, Minnesota and, and Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are tree covered. And so you've got those exposed cliffs way up at, near the top and then uh, colors, 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 you know, draping over these towering bluffs that go as high as like 500 feet. That's pretty awesome. And the views, if you get to the top of some of them, like Grandad Bluff and La Crosse, um, that's actually closer to 600 feet. Um, you get a view over the city. You see the sparkling waters of the river and then the bluffs of Minnesota and Iowa. Yeah, and some other notable places you wrote about are specifically for sunset views. And I think that kind of speaks to you encouraging people like take this road and slow down, right? Right, right, right. You do you do have to get out of the car. I mean, it's great to have a road trip and you're just cruising along, maybe munching on your favorite snacks that you picked up along the way, fresh cheese curds, what have you. But um, it's nice to get out, stretch your legs and uh, experience a little bit of that color other than just through the window. Um, but there are some excellent sunset views along this stretch. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Wyalusing State Park. I have, yeah. Yeah, where the uh, the Wisconsin River meets the Mississippi there. And uh, we go camping there uh, every once in a while. And there are a couple viewpoints on, you know, high up on the bluffs where you're looking out over the Wisconsin and the Mississippi. And to see a sunset over that is, is pretty incredible. And along with the colors, of course, down there in the lowlands and on up to the bluffs where you're you know, looking out from. Yeah, and um, on my way back, I also spontaneously stopped in, was it Perot State Park on my way back down the Great River Road? Yeah, that's that's another good one. There's um, Again, I always think of birding when I go up there because there's a lot of great wetlands surrounding it. But um, central to the park are these you know, 500-foot bluffs that have trails that get you up to um, scenic overlooks. And um, again, another great place for camping. But nearby in Trempolo is the uh, Trempolo Hotel, which 
is famous for its walnut burger has been for for years before i i think walnut burgers were really a thing um so a great place to stop and eat and then of course go get the views over at the park so what would you recommend to someone who hasn't really done a road trip experience even if it's just like hey we're gonna take a couple of days and explore the great river road what tips do you have do you have playlist recommendations even Ha! Ah, well, everyone's got to have a playlist. I, I, you know, I, I've got mine, you know, various songs, sometimes just the random ones on my phone, but, you know, because I only choose really good music <laughs> on my phone. Requirement. Anyway, it's a requirement. But I also say pack a cooler. And I don't mean to bring food with you, but to bring food home with you. Um, there are so many places, cheese factories, butcher shops, or, you know, farmer's markets, or all sorts of things along these road trips that I'm always like, oh, we got to take some of that home. So that is a requirement for us. I keep one in the car no matter where I go. And I also, I'm a big fan of the Gazetteer, the map book. Instead of um, trying to figure out on Google where to go from where I'm at, it's much easier to open up a book that's got a sprawling map that gives you the perspective and, and gives you an idea of what's close by. I mean, don't get me wrong, I use Google all the time, Google Maps, but that gazetteer kind of gives me other ideas because you can see those little side roads and the state uh, scenic byways and rustic roads. Um, so those, I think, are my two for sure things that I have to have in the car. Um, if you're a bird watcher, you got to bring your binoculars. Yeah, other than that, it's just it's easy enough to just go. And a lot of these road trips, even the Great River Road, if you just were to drive to La Crosse on a Saturday morning and head down to Potosi, you could do that in one day and then drive home if that's what you're looking to do. But you could also extend that into a long weekend and stop at various places along the way. So it just really depends on how much time you have and what you're interested in doing. Just embrace it while you're out there, right? Absolutely. Go with it. Go with the flow, much like the river uh, and the, the road that follows it. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me to share more about embracing our fall drives here. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Kevin Revolinsky is a freelance writer, and you can find his cover story about fall drives in Wisconsin in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. Revolinsky spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. The fall recommendations continue next. We'll help you plan a fall trip to Door County in our Wandering Wisconsin series, next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Door County is a popular travel destination in Wisconsin all year round. But there are some extra reasons to visit the peninsula this time of year. Fall colors are peaking, orchards are blooming, and Halloween season is in full swing. 
For this month's Wandering Wisconsin, Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen speaks with Ann Sayers from Travel Wisconsin and A.J. Frank to learn about some of the many harvest and Halloween activities happening in Door County. AJ, you are the owner and operator of Door County Trolley Tours, and this time of year, you offer a Trolley of the Doomed Ghost Tour. So what could people expect on one of these tours? Well, they are much fun, Um, but our ghost tour uh, is in the evening, of course, because when else would you want to do a ghost tour? Um, And it's about 10 stories that we take you to. We visit lighthouses, a sunken ship story. We actually take you into a true haunted house and we take you to other spirited buildings, visiting a gravesite as well. It's a wonderful tour that it takes you to 10 stories and we tell you those stories and these are not made up. Nobody's jumping out with chainsaws. These are real stories told right, right where they occur. So it's really a great tour for adults and kids. Um, and these are stories passed down from generations of Door County citizens um, and really some Tourists even can confirm a lot of these hauntings. What's a true haunted house? Well, haunted houses, as you see in movies and maybe go to a a local one around Halloween, um, are, you know, made up houses. These, the particular house we take you into is a true haunted house. In other words, we encourage people to bring cameras. We probably, I'm not kidding you, for the last 20 years, seven to eight times a week, we get emails and texts of pictures of this one house we talk you into. It is truly haunted. Um, whether you believe in ghosts or not, you see these pictures and they are really tell the story. It's really one of the true haunted houses. In fact, pictures upon pictures uh, that we get uh, um, confirm these hauntings. So you said this is a family-friendly tour. Like what age would you recommend people attend? Yeah, we recommend ages, you know, five and up, but we have the parents use their judgment because there are nine and 10 year olds that just can't handle anything of scary nature. And we, you know, we tell the parents to use judgments and then there's five year olds that are very mature. So we generally say five and up um, can purchase tickets. Any uh, children under the age of five, we do not allow on. But again, we use the uh, the parents to, to make their own judgment on their children. Could you share one of your favorite haunted tales from the Door County Peninsula? It is the story of Huey Melvin, who happens to be a child. And Huey Melvin was loved uh, by the community of Fish Creek in the 19, early 1900s. And he was beloved as Huey Melvin was a small child. He eventually died of tetanus while uh, sliding down the cellar door of his home. His home now is currently a bed and breakfast with some cottages. There is a story in one of these cottages that a family that come up to Door County for many years had always visited his grave site and left trinkets. One year, they did not visit Huey Melvin's grave site because they were staying somewhere else. And there's a story of this particular cottage that he haunted that night. And that's the story of Huey Melvin, a great, great story in a great location. And the stone still exists Will people visit his site And after hearing our tour, we'll go back the next day or the following days and leave him trinkets of gifts on his gravestone like that family did years and years ago. Mm, Okay. In addition to the ghost tours, Door County Trolley also offers a haunted pub crawl and a murder and mayhem tour. So what can you tell me about those experiences? Again, great, wonderful tours. We started the haunted pub crawl because a lot of people wanted to take the ghost tour and they wanted to make it into more of a party. So many years ago, we said, well, let's 
We have many taverns uh, here in Door County that have haunts. And I did some research and we said, well, let's make it an adult variety where they get a ghost story, but then they can go in and partake in another spirit, that one in a glass. So that one's really up for 21 and older. You have to be 21 or older. Um, but it's, you know, it's a hint to ghost stories and more about the fun type atmosphere. We play spooky music along the way. So it really becomes a fan favorite really in September, October. And it's a wonderful tour on the Haunted Pub Crawl. And then the Murder Mayhem Tour is about six of our murderous crimes here in Door County. We run that year-round, summer and fall, where we take you to six of our gruesome murders. And they're, they're very intricate murders, murders you would never think that would be in a sleepy little county like Door County. They're unbelievable what happened. Um, so we actually take you to those six murders. We tell you who did it, why they did it, what happened thereafter, any kind of murder mysteries. Or anything like that, as far as TV shows, you're going to love the Murder Mayhem Tour. So, and there are lots of other activities, Halloween and otherwise, going on in Door County throughout the month. So, maybe after somebody has taken in the trolley tour, what are some other things they could do? Yes, and I'm loving all of these ideas already, but I have a couple more for you for some more frights. There's the Red Barn Haunted Corn Maze. They're open every Friday night in October. It's a forest fill attraction. It's way back in the field. It's full of surprises. So prepare yourself for a half mile of fear as you navigate the maze with only a black light. And you'll board a haunted hayride to and from the maze. And that's, of course, if you make it through the maze. And if you're sticking around Egg Harbor, you can also visit the Wood Orchard Market for seasonal flavors. Just taste apple cider donuts. I've already had a million this year. Uh, browse the shelves of locally produced goods for cherry flavored everything, horseradish sauce, honey mustard, so much more. And the Wood Orchard, Orchard Market also sells apple varieties that are hard to find elsewhere, like its newest introduction, which is the smitten apple, and that is from New Zealand. And you might even want to try some seasonal craft brews. For that, you'd want to stop at the One Barrel Brewing Tap Room that's in Egg Harbor. One of their beers even pays tribute to the trolley that takes you to Door County's haunted spot. It's called the Door County Trolley Red Cherry Lager. And you can keep busy there by playing board games inside, or you can enjoy an evening around the outdoor fire pits. And for dog owners, note that you can bring your dog to hang out on their patio. I just did that this past weekend, and it was wonderful. You know, I have all those things. And then in addition, of course, we have our trolley tours where we run you know, a, a fall color scenic tour. We do wine tours um, as well. Um, but there's just so much to see and do in this county between wineries and distillery, loud music outside. Uh, it's just a great place to be, whether you take a trolley tour or you just come up to do anything because there's a lot to do up here outside and inside. So, Anna, it's hard to pick the right place to stay in Door County because there are so many beautiful options. But if people are planning an October trip to the area, where would you recommend they stay? Okay, I have a couple recommendations for you. One are the newly modernized cottages at the Alpine Resort. The one to three bedroom cottages offer privacy and modern comfort right there on that lakeside setting. You can consider booking a tea time at the resort's century old golf course, the Alpine, which is some of the most scenic golfing in Wisconsin, which is really saying something for our state. And guests can also climb aboard a schooner for a sailing trip, or you could catch live music, rent boats. There's so much to do at the Alpine Resort. And for those seeking a family-friendly option, consider the Newport Resort. That's centrally located in Egg Harbor. Makes it a short walk to all the great shops and restaurants that are in that community. And they even have a game room and an indoor heated swimming pool for downtime. 
If people aren't too full of their Halloween candy, where would you suggest people grab a bite to eat? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So maybe grab breakfast, lunch, or dinner at the mezzanine. They have lots of local flavors and a fantastic setting. It's right there in the heart of Egg Harbor. You can take this, um, take in the sunset on their rooftop patio. Try Wisconsin favorites with the Door County twist, such as the house breaded cheese curds that are served with, this sounds so good, lavender cherry chutney. Or you can go with pan-fried whitefish caught locally from the Bailey's Harbor Fish Company. If you need to fuel up for a hike, maybe grab a fresh bread and sandwich from McReady Artisan Bread Company. They prepare hearty sandwiches, high-quality ingredients, and of course, it's Door County, so you're going to find bread made with locally grown tart cherries and dried cranberries. And if the weather's a little cool on your visit, you can always warm up with one of their homemade soups of the day and always save room for a cookie. Door County is a really popular place to visit in Wisconsin all year round. But for both of you, why would you recommend people plan a trip to the area during the Halloween season? Well, like I said, I was just in Door County this past week and the leaves are just starting to change. And no matter, you know, whether you're there for the spooky things, which I highly recommend, but just fall in Door County is spectacular. And there's so much to do, whether you love the water, hiking, food and culinary arts, shopping. It's it's beautiful and um, there are lots of festivals and you're going to have a great time. Everyone in your travel party is going to walk away with a story to tell. And for me, it is about the people that visit us in October. Yes, we have all the color and the beauty and the chill in the air. But really, when people come to Door County, they come with the expectation to have fun and relaxation. And you see it on their faces. And very few places do you find that. Uh, but especially in autumn, it, it's a time when people who come up to visit are just in the best mood. And it's great as, a, as somebody that owns a business and is around it. And I'm also a local and live here. Uh, it's the people that come up and the, the expectation and the joy they bring. And that, to me, is why everybody should come to Door County in fall. All right, AJ and Anne, thank you so much for joining me on Lake Effect for Wondering Wisconsin. Thanks thank for you. having me. AJ Frank is the owner and operator of Door County Trolley Tours, and Sayers is the secretary of the Department of Tourism. They spoke with Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen for Wandering Wisconsin, a monthly conversation that helps you plan a trip right here in our home state. You can find previous conversations at wuwm.com. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll hear from the couple behind Maya Ophelia's, a food truck in Bayview that's serving up vegan Filipino-Mexican cuisine. Plus, Bubbler Talk looks into a historic miniature train museum in Milwaukee. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.